I don't have a Father's Day message per se, but in, in light of Father's Day, I did want to make a couple comments. In the last uh, couple years, we've lost some men that were truly fathers to this congregation. When I look at Bill and Kurt, they spent 15 to 20 years really serving this congregation. And the question in my mind is now, who's going to become the next generation of fathers, so to speak? And in some ways, um, when, when Paul was telling Timothy and Titus to appoint leaders in the towns, he was saying, find guys that have done well with their families, find guys that have done well in the community, look for that, and then establish them. And part of that is, you know, in fatherhood, a huge thing is just, in a sense, showing up every day, right? And being willing to invest of yourself into your wife and your children in a way that um, maybe puts your own needs aside for the moment until you get family taken care of. And, you know, a person's always going to look after themselves at some level, right? But that, that need for constancy is so lacking in our culture. And, and truly, one of the most important things you can do is to keep investing in, in your family. And, and we know the import of the loss of fathers. And, and we can see the, the unraveling around us. But how are we going to do that differently? And we look at the example of God who continues to reach out to us. But in the same way, I watch families who... I, I watch people who say their father disappeared early in their life. And then, you know they walk through the thing of, well, he is not responding to me. He's not going to respond. They eventually say, I, I guess I'll just let this go. And then at some point, he reaches out again. They're going, what do I do now? You know, that emotional yo-yo is just brutal. And even so, sometimes it's just the dad say, well, I, I'm feeling the need for some connection now in life. And it's still about him. You know, disgusting you know, in that measure. But in the same way within a congregation, there needs to be people that are just consistent, constant, showing up, giving their best, whether it is splashy or not in the day, but it's just like that cumulative effect over time is huge. And, uh, you know, I just, I encourage you, even like with this congregation, pray for fathers. Pray that there will be these leaders who are willing to give of themselves on a regular basis, whether it's, you know, has the, the day impact or not, but it's just that constant being willing to um, give of themselves. Um, anyway, that's my plug for Father's Day. Now that I'm done with my holiday greeting, uh, <laughs> you know how poor I am at this with holidays, but... Um, I give you what I get, and that's it. So <laughs> this week, I was looking at some things, and, and I'm kind of following up on what we had been looking at in Genesis a few weeks ago. I feel like when God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, 
He didn't just talk it. Then he goes the next step in drawing them into the garden and having Adam name the animals in a sense. He's teaching them a rulership over creation. And when he plants the garden, it's not just to give them something to do, but it's helping them begin to do what the design was all about. You know, if, if he's uh, telling him to exert authority over the earth, and then he plants a garden and, and, and helps him get going. What an incredible start. But the other portion on that is that when he plants the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden and tells him not to eat of it, there's a, an awareness that when he gave us the ability to choose whether to interact or not, there is also the ability to say, no, I don't want to do what you say. And in that, he plants the tree right in the middle where it can't be avoided. It's an issue that has to be taken on. And I, he prepared for their restoration and salvation before they ever fell. He knew it was coming, but he still made preparation. And it, it's intriguing to me how the process goes where they, they look at the fruit and everything about this appears wondrous. You know, it looks great. It's desirable for food. It, it, it uh, can give us wisdom. You know, it, it's, it's the same temptation with any sin that we participate in. In the moment, it, it, it looks amazing, and there are amazing attributes, but it, the, the fruit of it, the long-term effect is such that we're going, no, this was a terrible decision. So he sets it there. They make the choice. Immediately, they start tearing up portions of the garden. They grab leaves and are trying to cover themselves. And uh, it's intriguing to me that they, they start destroying plants to, to, to cover up for their sin. And, and then they, they go and hide, and yet God doesn't leave them. He, he searches them out. And... You know, where are you? Well, I was hiding because I was naked. And, that, and he's going, well, what did you do? He doesn't ignore it. And he doesn't just let them excuse it, but he confronts it, which is powerful. You know, that, that he wouldn't just, just pretend, but rather he has a, a plan in mind to bring salvation and to free them of sin so he's not just going to leave it. And, uh, you know, they, they go through this, and, and there are certainly repercussions, right? There's some terrible things that take place. And, you know, he, he says to the woman, your, your pain is going to be increased in childbirth. In relationship to your husband, you're wanna, going to want to control, but he's going to control you. Uh, th those are unpleasant things to hear. And then with the, the man, he says, yeah, you're going to work, but it's, you're going to only eat through your sweat. And furthermore, the ground is going to produce thistles and thorns. It's going to get much more complicated. And, and there's this awareness that this is part of the fruit of, of what's going on. And then he says, death is coming as well. And then he, he makes garments for them. And so it's the first instance you see of animals dying, but it's to cover them. And then he 
he does drive them out of the garden. So there is a separation from, from the beauty of what could have been. That said, I want to go to Psalm 32 because David is like approaching from the other end of saying how amazing it is that our sin can be forgiven. You know, he's acknowledging sin, but he's saying how incredible that God has made provision. How blessed is the one whose rebellious acts are forgiven. And, and again, in poetic form for that day, you're going to see a statement, then you're going to see a se second statement with different words, but carries that same idea. And so it's a, a, a way of, of strengthening the comments, but it's, it, it's their writing style, so to speak, whose acts are forgiven, whose sin is pardoned. You know, how happy is a person that can be this? How blessed is the one whose wrongdoing the Lord does not punish, in whose spirit there is no deceit. So how wondrous it is when God releases us from the wrong we've done. And I feel like this phrase, in whose spirit is no deceit, is like you acknowledge what is rather than trying to ignore and hide. You don't try to just cover it up. You don't try to escape and avoid but rather you come before the Lord and say, this is who I am, this is what I've done. And you face it with him, and he's willing to address it. He says, when I refuse to confess my sin, my whole body wasted away. Well, I groaned in pain all day long. For day and night you tormented me, you tried to destroy me in the intense heat of summer. I don't particularly like the way that translation takes it, but he's... In a sense, the picture's drawn, you know how in a, a very hot day, how your strength is just sapped? That's what happens when we're carrying our sin and it's not been released. It's just like we lose this drive or our ability to, to move forward because we, we know we're carrying this weight. And, and you know, it's, it's as if we're, we're looking and... and we're unwilling to face it. And so there's this constant drag on our lives, and we're trying to figure out why. When you look around you and many are walking in depression, some of that at times is just because people have not been able to free themselves from the wrong that they've been doing. And they know it. And they're carrying a weight that they just can't seem to let go. They've yet to find that in Christ there's a release and a freedom that opens us up to a, a joy of life that is unavailable in any other way. And so there are times when, you know, this ongoing cycle of, of depression and sorrow and pain is because there's an ignoring of what the real issues are and a refusal to address what's right in front of them. And quite honestly, even in our own lives, we, even though we know about forgiveness, there's regularly times when we'll just kind of say, well, it's not that big a deal. And, and you do your best to avoid. And, and pretty soon it doesn't even come into your thinking, and yet there's a weight walking with you that you just don't seem to dump, can't get rid of. 
And it takes this turning to the Lord, facing him, and addressing the issue and allowing him to bring cleansing. Well, I'm, he says, I confess my sin. I no longer covered up my wrongdoing. I said, I'll confess my rebellious acts to the Lord. And then you forgave my sins. I finally said, okay, it's time to deal with this. And I want to suggest that if you get in the habit of saying, I'm sorry, there are times when you want that quick, I'm sorry, we're done, let's move on. And really what it is, is I want to feel better, and I know I've violated my conscience in this, and so what I want to do is the quick fix. Sorry. And God at times will address us in a way that says, no, you need to look at the ramifications of this. You need to look at the other issues surrounding this. You need to be willing to truly address this thing. And so there are times when we're going, I said I'm sorry, but I just don't feel better. Well, you, you have attempted to short-circuit the process. And there are times when we have to say, what I did in connection with this person brought a great deal of harm to them. And I need to try to make some kind of restoration. Or what I've done has implications when I was looking after me and what looked appealing to me, and I had no concern for what else was going on around me. And there's times when God has to bring that to us and say, yeah, you saw the surface and you saw the immediate, but there were ripples that went a long ways out. And you need to be willing to see the full extent of where this goes. I've mentioned this before, but it, I think all of us have looked at Adam and Eve and said, what if they hadn't sinned? Could this thing still be going on? And yet, in some ways, we want to attribute more disaster to their sin than what we want to attribute to our own. We would like to say, if they wouldn't have messed up, we all could have been a whole lot better off. And yet, we would like to say, but my sin, yeah, I'm, I'm nobody in this regard. And it doesn't have that much impact. There is nothing in Scripture that says that. There's nothing that says that our own sin doesn't have similar effect even for generations. And so the importance of, if it's important in regard to Adam and Eve, it certainly is important to our own lives as well. He says, for this very reason, every one of your faithful followers should pray to you while there is a window of opportunity. Certainly when the surging water rises, it will not reach them. I, I, this phrase, window of opportunity, grabs me because there is a time to deal with things. And if you refuse at the time, so to speak, often a callousness grows and you don't see the opportunity to fix that again. And even... I guess I, I feel when, it, when Scripture talks about the unpardonable sin, I think what that is is that a callousness grows over people to where they don't even see 
the issues anymore. And so they can't be set free. In regard to this window of opportunity, it's very important when God is speaking to our hearts to be willing to respond at that time. Now, thankfully, he keeps giving us opportunities. And it's like there, there keeps being these windows, but we don't get to control that and just say, well, I'll take care of this when I'm done enjoying it. Or I'll take care of this when I feel like you know, it's better for my situation. We are not the ones exerting control in that moment. And so we need to accept the window of opportunity as God provides it. And this uh, surging water is the picture of just our, the evil around us flooding our lives and it's saying, no, God will allow us to rise up or pull us out of the, the lake, as you said. Um. It says, you're my hiding place. You protect me from distress. You surround me with shouts of joy from those celebrating deliverance. In other words, you you take care of me and you protect me. You bring me to a safe place. And I'm in a company of others that are celebrating the same goodness of God that has set us free. I think this switches voices in Psalm 38, 8, and 9, where the Lord is speaking. He says, I will instruct and teach you about how you should live. I will advise you as I look you in the eye. Don't be like an unintelligent horse or mule, which will not obey unless they are controlled by a bit or bridle. It's like, don't force me to just keep making you do things. But... Look me in the eye and let's get this straightened out. It's a wonderful lesson for kids when you're, when you're working with them to, and there's a certain sense of shame or not wanting to face you or that, and they're not wanting to look you in the face and you go, look me in the eye. It's, it's a powerful thing. And it's a powerful thing about, among adults as well, right? That looking in the eye just is powerful among people. And you're going, God is willing to, in a sense, look us in the face and say, let's take care of these things. What a wondrous opportunity that is. An evil person suffers much pain, but the Lord's faithfulness overwhelms the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be happy, you who are godly. Shout for joy, all of you, or morally upright. I want to read just a a few other passages in connection with this. In Proverbs, it says, The one who covers his transgressions will not prosper, but whoever confesses them and forsakes them will find mercy. And then the next verse uh, goes on and says, Blessed is the one who's always cautious, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into evil. And he kind of takes that a step further and just saying, if you'll watch where your life is going, if you'll walk with intention, it's a whole lot better than just refusing to deal with the issues because then you'll fall into some real trouble. Isaiah, our men's group had this reading this week, and this passage is very similar, but it, it, it reads like this, hey, All who are thirsty, come to the water. You have no money, come buy and eat. 
You want your sins forgiven? You want things cleaned up? It doesn't matter whether you can buy your way back or not. God has done the part. He's purchased our salvation. He says, why pay money on something that will not nourish you? Spend your hard-earned money on something that will not satisfy. Pay attention. Come to me. Listen so you can live. The sixth verse, seek the Lord while he makes himself available. It's like that window of opportunity again. Call to him while he's nearby. When you feel your heart pressing you on regard to the issues of life that you know that there needs to be a correction, that's the time to deal with it. That's the time to say things need to change. It's not saying later. It's not saying, well, when I'm in a better position or when I get a chance. No, deal with it when he's addressing it. Goes on, the wicked need to abandon their lifestyle, sinful people their plans. They should return to the Lord, and he will show mercy to them. To their God, he will freely forgive them. What an incredible thing. Then it goes on and says, I know the plans I have for you. My plans are better than your plans. My deeds are better than your deeds. And then he gives an illustration. He says, like snow and rain that come down to earth, They don't just evaporate and go back. They nourish plants in the meantime. He says, I have a plan. that My will is such that it comes, it bears fruit. Then it returns to me. It doesn't come back empty. He says, I promise that what I, the promise that I make does not return to me having accomplished nothing. But I realized as I desire and as fulfilled as I intend. Now, here, the ending of this is intriguing to me in regard to the fall. It says, Indeed, you'll go out with joy, and you'll be led along in peace, and the mountains and hills will give a joyful shout before you, and all the trees in the field will clap their hands. Where you kind of go, well, that's picturesque speech. I think when Paul says all of creation groans, there's an impact on creation, even with our sin. The setting of us free will also have impact. And the final picture that's given of a creation that's vastly different than what we know, it's intriguing to me in this last verse. It says, evergreens will grow in the place of thorn bushes. Firs will grow in the place of nettles. What was part of the curse? Thorns and thistles, right? What's part of the setting free? a transformation that doesn't even have these things. I would look forward to that day. I do look forward to that. New heaven and a new earth where everything is in place as it should be. I want to end with just uh, two separate verses as long as we're on this topic. When Peter was being restored by Jesus after... um, he had denied Christ, and Jesus reaches out to them. They're fishing. They, they come in. They have a meal together, and then Jesus is talking to Peter, and do you love me more than these? You know I do, and he goes, he takes them through it three times like the denial, and there's, there's an addressing here of the issue. You know, are you, are you going to follow me? And you know, again, Jesus didn't ignore it. 
He didn't just feed them the meal and say, let's be buddies again. But he really goes back to this issue so that it can be clean, so that it can, that it can be done with. And then Peter, looking around, looks at John and goes, well, what about him? You know, and it's kind of like, he didn't stay around either. You know, and, and, and Jesus says, so what? What I choose to do with him? You know, there's, there's a tendency in us, even when we're, we're talking to others about sin, and it's, going, it's like, yeah, we're all broken. You know, we, we all have brokenness in this area. And, and so, you know, my sin is not that much worse than yours. And so, you know, don't, don't start talking to me about my sin until you take care of your own. And, you know, and it's kind of this, you know, if, if you don't bother me, I won't bother you. Or if you don't look at mine, I won't look at yours. And, and, and it's all... And Jesus just cuts right to the chase and says, what I do with him is none of your business. You follow me. So, again, that's not an appropriate dodge. Just trying to evaluate by what others are doing. Say, well, I'm doing better than they are. Ultimately, we know that God is speaking to our hearts. And we're responsible to take what he's saying in that moment and deal with it. Doesn't matter what's going on in others' lives in that regard. The other one other verse I want to mention. Colossians chapter three, Paul's writing to the to the people, and he's going, You must become a forgiving people, just as the Lord has forgiven you. And so, in other words, the example's been set for us, the willingness to address sin and forgive. To, to face it head on and deal with it and move on, then we have to be willing to, to live the same. And, and so hopefully, you know, as we develop in community, there's this awareness, I've been forgiven much, I need to be willing to forgive much. So anyway, just in, in summary, when we're willing to for, repent, God's willing to forgive. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. That we can know true release from the things that we know were wrong. You know, to, to not have the sting of that anymore. Where it, it's a memory, but it isn't a painful, stinging thing anymore. Or it's, a, it's not this guilt-ridden of, oh, if I'd only done different. But there's a knowledge that today is important in the Lord as well. And then, you know, to, to take this window of opportunity and say, the Lord is speaking to my heart. I need to be willing to address this. And, you know, I, I feel like there are times when, when we have addressed something at a level and then it comes back around, and we're going, well, why is this memory haunting me? Because I already asked God's forgiveness, and I was sincere in that. And yet, I truly believe that at the next level, he's saying, okay, yes, we took care of that portion of it, but there's more that you need to understand. 
And, and I'd suggest to you that if, if a sin like that has been a part of your life keeps coming back to your memory, that most likely there are facets of that that you have yet to walk through in the Lord's, in, in a way of health, where he's saying, yes, you saw your side of it, but you didn't necessarily see the implications in this other person's life. And, and you need to be willing to acknowledge that that was, that was sorrow in them as well. Or you need to recognize the impact on your family or, or on your community. And, and there's a, an ongoing thing of just saying, until it's been fully dealt with, the Lord can bring it up as often as He wants. Because He wants you to be able to be fully done with the thing. He wants you to be free and clear of it entirely. And if your understanding isn't there on the surface, it may well come back and visit you. But it's only for your health. It's only for your well-being that he would bring that back at all so that you can be totally set free, so to speak. And finally, refuse to get caught in comparison with others. We choose to forgive and then we celebrate each other's victories. And, it, you know, as a community, we celebrate forgiveness in each one. So we're not just saying, well, you were sinful, but we're saying you are forgiven as well. What a wondrous thing. We thank you for your scripture that speaks life, that speaks life. And we ask that you would even in this moment, help us to process things, that our lives might be truly set free in all that you desire to do for us in that manner. Amen. I'd like to give you one last illustration. Look at your hands like this. Are these going to be hands that walk into sin? participate in sin? Are these hands that look to bring healing in events or situations? Right? That's kind of the option in front of us, the things that we do. Are, you, are these going to be hands that destroy and tear apart? Are these going to be hands that step into foolishness? Or are these going to be hands that heal? It's a good illustration to just consider, right? I want hands that heal. What are we going to do? I want to pray for God's blessing upon you. Uh, next week, Charlie will be sharing. We have that privilege. Um, let's pray now. May your blessing rest on these, your people. May they know the fullness of favor that you intend for their lives. May they discover with joy what true forgiveness is being set free in you. I ask as each one goes into the community that you'll give them words of life to speak over others, enable them to carry out the workings of your kingdom, gift them with the supernatural. Be lifted up and exalted, our Lord, we pray. We love you this day. Amen.